This week on the podcast, we had Chaz Weldon. Joe and I just wrapped up our conversation with him. For those of you who don't know Chaz, he's a saddle maker in Billings, Montana. On the podcast, we asked him about his upbringing, what it was like to start a career in saddle making, and be around guys back in the day like Dale Harwood. For those of you who do know Chaz and maybe riding one of his saddles, you know that he has a reputation that precedes him for quality work and putting an amazing seat in a saddle. We had a great time with him. We were glad to have him on, ask him a lot of questions, and I think we both got quite a bit out of it. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. What is this episode? It'll be episode eight? Yeah, number eight. Number eight. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that stood out to me Chaz was, um, you know, he's, he's a craftsman and in the interview, you'll hear him talk about how he doesn't necessarily identify as an artist with what he does. And I'd love to hear him talk more about it. And, you know, hopefully we get him back on again, but I think that might be one of the big things that separates a pure artist from a craftsman is he, he talked about how important it was for his saddles to be able to hold up to a hard day's work day in and day out um, and how his background and his upbringing kind of shaped that. Yeah, it was a great interview. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. Mm. All right, we're recording. Well, Chaz Weldon, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, this is great. Um, I think this is my first Zoom meeting uh, multi-statal that I know of. Uh, I'm certainly not accustomed to Zoom. So, uh, <laughs> Joe, you're in Virginia. Yes, sir. Ben, you're in Georgia. In Georgia. All right. Yeah. And you're there in Billings. I'm in Billings, Montana, and it is hot. It's been a hot summer. Oh, is, really? it un- is it unusually yeah. hot for you? Uh, not especially. It's just... Uh, been a lot of days of it gotcha uh, you know one day after another high 90s 100 so autumn's coming yeah yeah i'm i'm kind of ready for fall here just because mm-hmm. we've been underwater for like the past two weeks it feels like i don't know how much rain you've gotten down there ben but around here it's like you're still just tropping around in the mud everywhere but the grass is growing like crazy and we're getting a bunch of cuttings of hay. So I guess we can't complain too much. Yeah. It's been raining every afternoon. The other night I was trying to ride some horses, you know, in the evening when it got cool Mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I mean, we got this storm that blew in and this one horse isn't good at tying and he was freaking out. And then my dumb self went and got an umbrella because I had to walk out to the truck and I just about. Yeah, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. It was already a bad storm, and then I went and got an umbrella. But yeah, yeah, we got more grass than we can than we can handle down here. Cool. Well, that's a good problem. Well, Chaz, I don't know if Joe filled you in or not, but you know, this podcast we're kind of digging and hunting for the most polarizing sort of conversation we can possibly come up with. So <laughs> feel free to lay it all out there. But all right. We're happy to have you. You're a name that's been in saddle making and gear and around this horsemanship since I pretty close to when I first got around uh, learning about Buck Brandman and going to some clinics. I think I started shopping for a saddle 
early on and looking for used stuff on Ranch World ads and places like that. And your name would pop up everywhere. So yeah, pretty neat. It's like a household name to well, me ever since I've been around this. We got to say something qualifying to really give Chaz his due. Chaz has been doing this like for decades before either of us were born, Ben. So it's not <laughs> just our lifetimes. It's it's quite I, quite I a good say, while. <laughs> ben, what year were you, were you born? 97. Oh, my gosh. I had made hundreds of saddles by then. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I listened, uh, I listened to one of your past interviews and, um, I guess, uh, you said you got started, um, kind of almost by, by chance in the, in the saddle making, like you were kind of inclined to be, um, an artist, but there was like a local saddle shop you started working at and it kind of drew you. Yeah, that's it. Uh, in a nutshell, it, it, uh, the career chose me. Uh, for sure, I was 1976, and there was uh, a local saddlery called Conley Saddlery that had been in Billings since 1912, and it was renowned for the highest quality saddles and tack in uh, eastern Montana, northern Wyoming, and uh, the old saddle maker uh, was about to retire. He was two years from retirement. A uh, guy had quit him. Uh, they It was a uh, uh, sure enough, nowadays, you guess you'd call it old time saddlery, where we did uh, all the repair. We made a lot of strap goods and then new custom saddles. So he always hired a, uh, another person to do the repair work. And uh, I had known him all my life from going in there. Our ranch, we did our, our shopping there. It was in downtown Billings. And I guess... Over the years, I did and, and uh, had more of a friendship, I guess, than I realized. And he was looking for somebody that uh, had not done any leather work whatsoever because uh, he wanted me to, to do, he wanted to teach me to do it exactly how he wanted it, which was certainly the case. I had never done any leather work. So he called me one, it was right after the 1st of January, 1976, and it was about 30 below. And I had never even had an indoor job. I had um, gotten out of high school and went right to cowboy and, you know, boy, that sounded pretty good, except he wanted a two-year commitment. And I was, let's see, in 76, I was 24, and that sounded like a lifetime. And boy, I stood and fretted on that. And I thought, how am I ever going to say I can do something for two whole years, you know? So a, a lot of friends encouraged me, so I jumped into it, and uh, he started me right off. Uh, like I think I said in that other interview, it, it's probably no different now, but in those those days, saddle shops, I mean, they were like car mechanic, or car repair places, whatever. They re, they hired you for one reason, and that was to make them money. So he just started me right off with a, just a little handful of tools that he lent me on a bench, and I started repairing saddles and just learning basic leather work, cutting straps, edging, slicking, doing the repair jobs. We did a lot of relines in those days, a lot of new stirrup leathers. Uh, they had done, they had acquired such a tremendous ranch business over their decades and decades that they were now into generations of ranch people uh, getting their saddles from them. So uh, saddles were being wore out, you know, and so I jumped right into it and uh, 
kind of knew about day one. I just loved it. And he was, uh, as, and in that era, I think a lot, uh, this was 1976. And up till then, a lot of the cowboys I worked for, the ranch cow bosses, whoever, they were the World War II generation. These guys had, a lot of them had been born in the 19 teens, lived through the depression and gone into the service in World War II. And man, they were tough guys. They, um, they'd kind of show you once and then chew you out after mm -hmm. that, you know? Sure. So I had to really bear down. And so there was no messing around. He was not, I was not there for him to stroke me or, or prepare me for my own career or anything like that. It was just get her done kid and make me money, which was really good because I learned immediately the correct way to do it and, and the not correct way. And so I worked for him for two years. And then yeah. he retired. It, isn't it interesting? Um, you know, you were saying he was looking for someone who hadn't done any leather work. Um, you know, the name of this podcast is On the Move, and uh, we've tried to make it a habit of um, interviewing people who are, are good at what they do and kind of pursuing, um, you know, kind of excelling at their craft. And a common theme. I've seen whether it is, you know, saddle making or anything else. Um, when there is kind of a quote unquote master, they're almost more interested in dealing with people like that. The people that are kind of, you know, empty cups and they don't have all these, um, you know, preconceived notions about how to do stuff. So that's interesting that he was looking for someone like that. And I guess it worked out for you because it was kind of like the stars aligned you know, after, now you yeah, have a career. That's a really it. good point, Joe. I know a thought just came to mind in the fact, you know, he, he, it, it was a, you know, it was a serious business. It was his income. It was his salary, you know, and, and he was also the type of guy, he didn't want somebody to come in there and debate on how to do something or argue or make up different points. It was just like, this is how you're going to do it. And for, and fortunately for me, he was, in the master craftsman class, you know, he'd been making saddles for 30 since the 1940s after he got out of the army. And uh, so it was a great way to start. And, and I, to this day, I mean, I, what did I do today? I made a breast collar and I mean, you just, it's the same thing. You, you cut the leather out, you line it, you stitch it, you edge it, you slick. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you can never practice it enough. And uh, I was really fortunate to, start in with, and he was, you know, highly respected in the saddle world. That's where uh, a good friend of his was Don King. Of course, we all know from the, the Sheridan, Wyoming uh, saddlery that he had for many decades. And um, he would, that's how I met him. He would come and visit his friend Chuck and I was off in the corner and he'd come and look over my shoulder and whatnot. And then years later, I asked him for a job, you know, so it's, it's how it yeah. went. And That's he pretty and, cool. and I and he literally hired me on the basis of the fact that I'd worked for for this Chuck Harris. So it's it's interesting to me though, Chaz. Like that as a kid, you, did you ever mess around with fixing old saddles or doing any little leather repair? I know that's Not, something to me. Like hanging around horses since I was a kid. I mean, I, I I'm no leather working professional by any means, but I've definitely delved into some random projects, and it's it's a lot of fun, but that that's funny to me that you know you didn't ever do something like that not one thing not one iota you know wow. we all you know we had old saddles growing up and 
uh, I can remember one time I, I really I was maybe 12 or something and a stirrup broke or something and I put a different stirrup on there you know but the one thing you know growing up in and it was a small out cow outfit and my dad worked for bigger outfits in the area and so I literally started cowboying when I was 12 or you know going out with my dad and then after high school that was my only vocation I worked for an outfit for a couple of years remember we'd, we'd calve two or a thousand two-year-old heifers you know first calf heifers and so it was just one ranch job after another and I literally lived horseback I didn't go into anything else and so having that knowledge I remember distinctly thinking, you know, I got to do a really great job on this. I'm not going to put a stirrup leather in a guy's saddle that's not the right leather. I'm not going to punch the holes wrong. I'm going to, you know, because I knew, I knew what that was going to be used for. And that was very, as to this day, it's very important to me to get that stuff really right. And when uh, I went on, worked for different salaries, worked for King's salary for two years, and then back to Billings and started my own business and um, began developing my own style enough. And I remember I am really short legged. I mean, I practically don't have legs. So I always had saddles over the years where the seats were too wide and felt like it was just sitting on a barrel, you know. So sometime in the eighties or something, I built my uh, self uh, saddle. And I always thought, you know, if I could put in a really narrow ground seat, something that I'm just sick of, being feeling like I'm being spread and so I had in my mind something in in the shape of an English saddle which is real narrow and it's got a high rise to it and uh, I thought heck I'll try that and it worked good for me you know it was so comfortable and so that got to be kind of a thing over the years uh, I remember Buck getting his first one like that and he's like oh man that's great I do all of mine like that Somebody else would see it, somebody else would see it. So this, to this day, I still put in a, if requested, you know, a narrower ground seat than you see in a lot of other guys' saddles. Mm. So I'm- yeah, That's the word to, on the street is your saddle has the best seat. That's, that's yeah, the word yeah. out there. And I'm, yeah, I'm banking say. on it. I've put my money where my mouth is. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it's it's crazy. I, in fact, it, I mean, I remember at one period in time in the 90s when I was making a lot of them and a lot of bucks, uh, friends clients and stuff were riding them and it kind of came out from somewhere somebody criticized me for it. it's like it got back to me <laughs> i don't even know who said it <laughs> and i remember going back to buck and i remember greg elial and saying you know should i should i change these seats or something i said somebody's bitching about it and they're like no way man don't you don't, 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 oh, don't do it to mine don't do it to mine there's uh, always going to be the haters and the complainers out there you gotta i guess so yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so back. So the ground, the narrow ground seats, uh, that's a good transition into something I wanted to talk with you about. Because again, we talked about how Ben and I haven't been around that long, and you know, both born in the '90s. So I didn't realize that. I guess you'd say in like the last hundred years, at least nationwide, the Wade saddle was kind of a newer concept compared to a more traditional western saddle would you say that's accurate jazz yeah the the wade tree the wade style saddle whatever is a phenomenon 
that I haven't seen anything like it in my lifetime was when I started in the 70s in eastern Montana. Everything was great. And uh, I'd heard about a guy named Dale Harwood in the 70s. Just heard, you know, in, in saddle shop talk and stuff. And there was a guy named Ray Hunt, uh, you know, going around the, the, air, the, the country. I, I, was, I was on the Padlock Ranch, actually, and one of the cowboys had gone to one of Ray's clinics up at Absorky and uh, talked and talked about this, you know, phenomenal horseman. And he was riding this low-fronted, slick fork saddle, you know. I was like, what the heck is that? What is it? And uh, Ray Hunt came to Harden in 1979 and I went to his clinic and sure enough he had old uh, Hamleys and of course Dale Harwood saddles and we'd look through his he would, was kind enough he opened his trailer you know with all this great attack and he explained why he liked it you know the low front uh, doesn't rock uh, reef on a horse when you rope off of it all the all the uh, good aspects of it hmm. So, of course, then, you know, people started getting interested, you know, they they'd, uh, order saddle from me, say, I want to wait. Okay, so it, it, it happened. It just, it just happened. And it does have all those great qualities to it, as you guys know, no matter what the seat length or the cantle height or whatever, it's that great low fork over a horse's weather. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I, um, and there again, it, it, as you develop, into your own career and what you make and you know i started making saddles for buck and for different ranch cowboys and um it just got to where it's kind of a crossroads where i know friends of mine at that that young point or that point in their young career they'll rear off into maybe more of an arena style rope and saddle or cutters or they'll go into those different clientels and mine just because of where i was and what i was doing i was always in the eastern montana northern wyoming area and uh this those clients just wanted that saddle they wanted that wade tree you know mm-hmm. so it was one after another after another after another you know over the years and uh to this day i still make a lot of them, you know? yeah so uh, from the saddle maker perspective are are you kind of in the position where you know, someone picks up the phone and you've decided you're going to make a saddle for them. It's just, you know, whatever they want to do, or do you have a preference? Like I'd rather make slick forks or I'd, I'd rather, you know, try my hand at something with bigger swells or, you know, like, do you have like, what's kind of your thought process or are you just completely whatever they want to do? And I'm going to roll with that. Well, I've always had, you know, I'm working, uh, in the, in the different shops with different guys and you run into all kinds of, you know, obviously all kinds of personality types. And I, I never, it always kind of graded on me when I was in another shop and other guys and someone would come in order saddle for me and all they want to do is argue about what the saddle maker's particular preference was. And I thought, I, I don't, I don't like it when they do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, no, I don't, I, um, the only, you know, I go through an order form and, and I, and you have, I have dealt with a, a, a tremendous amount, hundreds of people over the years that they're ordering their first custom saddle. 
And so you walk them through. Some don't sincerely don't know the front from the back or the terminology of mm -hmm. the parts that you need to order one. So I'll walk them through that. And the only time I will make a uh, preference or suggestion is if it's something um, that's probably not going to work, say a horn too tall or 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 something something about it not not long ago a couple of years ago i had a gal from california called and she was her trainer had said she needs to have a center fire rigging you know and i said no i just uh, you know if you want to have one go to somebody else i just don't do those they're just not going to work for you and she didn't even you know didn't really know what mm -hmm. it was she just had to have it so in cases like that i will certainly steer them try to steer them towards something that's going to work you know but no i uh there's been a, a slight swing uh because for, for years i mean it was nothing but uh, slick fork wades mostly the wade style and there's been a slight movement or swell on um there's a really popular tree that i'm using now called a um either a dean oliver or a toots mansfield like a little just just about a 12 inch swell with the wood post horn and i think a lot of it is just um you know after a while styles don't really wear out but some especially young guy young, i was no different when i was a young cowboy i wanted to maybe try something a little different or they've seen one that looks like something they want to have so there's been i've been i've done more of that style in the last couple of years than i had the previous 30 you know Gotcha. So no, if somebody if somebody wants something, and and they, and I think in all cases, most very rarely do I ever have somebody come to me with a custom uh, order that they haven't seen somewhere else, and I'll mm -hmm. say, and then that's a really good starting point. You know, I'll say, okay, how did, uh, what did you like about you know joe's saddle or what did you like about ben's saddle that you want and they'll send a picture or something you know so it's a really good focal point so they're pretty much uh going in the store to buy a green shirt you know and, and sure. that's, what, that's what i <laughs> stick with you know yeah that makes sense well make, makes it uh, i guess in a way it, it makes it easier for you too because you have all the parameters lined out and then you just have to worry about the quality and not so much the um you know what what's like there's no guesswork in it for you i guess yeah yeah it's it's because uh, it's you know uh, making the custom saddle is is 100 detail you know it's mm -hmm. there's no like well maybe a little bit of this or that it's like no gotta i mean you're you're taking a great big slab of leather and you're you're cutting it out and you're yeah. forming it and there's no like well change it later thing you know it's like no it's got to be definitely yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah um what's uh what's one of the craziest things you've tooled onto a saddle for somebody i know i've seen some wild um, stuff in some tack rooms i always wonder who i wonder if they had like an, an x-rated license to do it on a few of them yeah no i i really stay away from that i am so traditional <laughs> you know uh, and you do get requests you know yeah. i know uh uh there's guys that really get into figure carving, you know, which I have really stayed away from. I just, I don't like to do it. I, I think the guys that do a phenomenal job, I don't know how some of them do it, you know, <clears throat> in a lot of places, you know, again, 
<clears throat> my bias is there's really no place on a good custom saddle for that. I mean, you know, guy tool guys that do a really nice job of tooling a guy's brand in there or something, you know. Um, I just I just stay away from it. And I I certainly do get requests for it, you know. But, yeah. Uh, I just say no. I don't think that'll work. Do you do a lot of <laughs> a lot of stamping? Do you? Yeah. Do yeah, that. I do. I, I've made a lots of rough outs too, you know, and, and some time I think I made my first, the half breed has been hugely popular, you know, the rough out seat and fender and then tool the rest of it. And uh, it's a really, uh, a, you know, it's affordable. It's hugely practical, you know, because of the, the, the rough out seat and fender gets a lot of wear on it and stuff. And, and you know, We've both seen lots of full, beautiful, full flower stamp saddles where it's just wore out under the where under the guy's leg, you know, under the person's leg, wherever they've rubbed it out over the years. So um, I still get a you know fair amount of just rough out cowboy saddles. There, there again, I, I even after I'm nearing 700 saddles and um, um, I've stuck pretty much with that you know ranch cowboy uh, clientele. You know, um, I've done, you know, like everybody over the, in the past, I've done some super fancy, uh, lots of silver uh, adornment saddles, you know, but I'm not really in that clientele. You know, I haven't strived for it. Um, it's, it's always, you know, I've always had so many orders ahead of me of that style of saddle. I've just stuck with it. Um, so that that's a good segue into what we talked about the other day, Chaz, and I wanted to bring that up again. Um, it was interesting to me hearing you talk about how Ray Hunt and then later Buck kind of shifted uh, your clientele demographic a little bit when they started, you know, hitting the road and um, kind of, uh, you know, spreading spreading their practice and stuff obviously wanted um kind of went along with that philosophy yeah well yeah without a doubt you know it, it opened up a, a whole new world for me because uh i think i made bucks first well i know i made his first saddle for him in 1987 when he was uh just really starting his career on the road <clears throat> and uh you know there was a, a landline telephone and a uh uh paper pad and pencil you know that was the yeah. form of communication then and so uh with him on the road it opened up you know that whole huge world of, of people out there and uh he was you know traveled different place every week you know as did as did ray hunt with mm -hmm. with dale harwood you know it was, it was kind of the same formula you know and uh boy here the orders started coming you know it never ceased yeah yeah did you see they finally got old buck on instagram have you noticed that he's doing stories I not, now I have you gotta seen. you gotta see it he's gonna become insta famous because at the end of his video <laughs> he does real classic what is he he says so long you know it's it's something else to whip through the stories and see buck on an instagram story <laughs> well he could probably use a little more exposure you know so. yeah Good yeah. for him. He's a, he's one of the last <laughs> holdouts though. Jazz, oh, when did yeah. you first get on Instagram? Uh let's see. It's been several years. I wonder if you beat oh, me. 
I mean, obviously, you um, could if you're older than me. But I, I, I bet people, they always assume we've done it first, but I was a, I yeah. was kind of a holdout till I was probably yeah. 20 at least. Yeah. I got my first iPhone in 2013. And so probably some, you know, obviously sometime after that. But I mean, then you realize the amazing advertising value of it. Yeah. Wow, I, I came to this great, you know, fruition here a couple of years ago i told my wife uh so I, so i'm going to be 70 here in a couple of months and all these years you know i've made saddles for you know guys about my age and maybe a little bit older and stuff and i and i realized i said my god they're, they're as old as i am they're not going to order any more saddles <laughs> i've got to appeal to their kids and grandkids and of yeah. course what more perfect you know venue for that than than instagram you know and yeah. so i plop stuff on there and, and it's and it's it's been fun you know you meet how you do how it goes you meet a lot of people through that you know they'll write back or whatever and, and um whether they order or not is immaterial to me it's just been really fun to communicate with a lot of people that way and different different people in my trade it's it's real fun to see you know i grew up obviously in the day when if you wanted to see a guy's work you'd have to travel to a shop you know mm -hmm. uh, there was a very very few saddle maker uh shows in the 80s a uh, few and that was wonderful because you finally get to meet these guys and visit with them you know yeah. Where now it's just instant you know and so it, it's it's a wonder it's it, well, you've got free worldwide advertising yeah. yeah saddle maker instagram you can get lost just like you just yeah. type in hashtag custom saddle and yeah. I mean, you could scroll for days because that's that seems to be the medium of choice for everybody now but yeah i mean yeah. it it's done that for saddle making and, and horsemanship and a lot of different things it's really helped connect people where in the past there were just kind of pockets you know and you it you very rarely maybe once or twice a year got to go outside your little pocket and see what was going on yeah, yeah you, that was, you gotta watch the, us horse trainers though on there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're selling of, snake oil. A lot of good advice, man. I always take it all. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I need this, I need this bit or that bit. Thank God for Instagram, right? You can throw out your training DVDs and just get Instagram. Yeah. And maybe yeah. join a Facebook group or two. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, you know. You see every cross section of our wonderful country and uh, just focusing on saddle making stuff but you know there's the good and bad and the ugly you know and doesn't matter they get all you know you th throw something out and all, tremendous amount of compliments you know it's like oh i'm like oh my gosh how are they ever gonna improve on something if everything they throw out is just so great you know and so that's yeah, gonna go on that's true yeah. what, what's that thing uh for never believe your own press yeah, that's right. You gotta, that's pretty hard on Instagram because it's pretty much just a, a pat each other on the back type deal most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it should be. There's enough arguing on. Yeah. You don't need a lot of negativity, really. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, so I've got another burning question for you, Chaz, and I know we've talked about it briefly, but this is this is always a really hot ticket item for people. And even as a horse trainer, I get asked about this all the time and it's saddle fit mm -hmm. on a horse, you know, does, will my saddle fit my horse? Will this fit that? And, you know, Ben and I have a little different 
perspective, I guess, especially because we're kind of just starting out horse. I, like, I don't know about you, Ben, but I basically, I've got like one nice custom made saddle and then I've got another saddle that I, I'll throw on some Colts, but that that's it. So as far as saddle fit and, you know, you're riding however many horses a day, it's like, well, I just put this saddle on this horse and then that's what I got. But a lot of people, you know, they're like, I, I ride this horse or I ride this breed of horses or I ride horses from this stud or whatever. And now I need a saddle to fit those type of horses. And, um, you know, talking about Instagram horse training, like there, it seems like there's a whole industry around just saddle fit now between saddle pads and electromagnetic this, and you, you know, the list goes on and on. So I guess it's kind of an open-ended question, but with decades and decades of saddle making experience, what kind of have you seen through the years and like, where are we at now with saddle fit and what works for horses? Well, and it is always, you know, the safest response is always just my own personal experience, you know, because this is, this is endless and it will always go on. Obviously, you know, a saddle is made on a saddle tree and it's made out of wood and it's covered with rawhide or fiberglass in some lot of cases. And what's always worked for me is, um, and then again, it's been, it's been fortunate. I started out with a, a really good tree maker, gosh, in the eighties and they worked okay. And they worked, they worked, they fit right. So I said, okay, we'll just stick with however you're forming the underside of those bars or whatever the rock is to the bar. We'll just stick with that. And so for decades now, uh, I've used two main tree makers and just within the last five years, a uh, young guy, Brian Seifert, just a hundred miles from me, started making really good trees. And so it's just kind of been that simple philosophy of those have really worked good. So don't change it, you know, um, over the years, uh, I'd have somebody's, and this has gone on forever. They'd they, back in the day, they would mail me a photograph. I say, I want to picture your horse's back and you can instantly see if he's high narrow withers or a little fuller shoulder or just get an idea you know and in in the in the construction of a tree <clears throat> obviously the bars are set at an angle and those angles can be moved in and out very little in other words a wider backed horse should have a little wider angle to set over that back and then you get into a deal where a person is riding all kinds of different shapes and sizes of horses, you know, younger horses with, that aren't haven't developed their backs, the muscle and bone structure of their back so much. As they get older, they get a little narrower, you know. So, um, and, I'm, and I'm not sure when this started. It, it definitely was not in the 70s or 80s. Uh, back when I started, there were basically two bar angles that trees were made on. They were the, the semi-quarter horse and the full quarter horse, the semi-quarter horse being slightly narrow. And they are, they're referred to now as the 90-degree angle or the 93-degree angle. And some people, has to, people have to realize, too, is that in custom 
trees, they are just that, they're custom. Every, there's no one school every tree maker goes to and there's no worldwide, you know, regimented jig that they use. Each guy learns from somebody else or whatever and develops his own <clears throat> system for, for constructing a tree. And it's getting too be One thing for one guy is not exactly the same thing for another guy. You know, that's why I say when I started with Keith Gurch in the 80s, you know, however he was doing it, whatever the bar angle was, whatever the the uh, inside of the bar looked like, it worked. And I just said, don't change it. Just go with that. And I'd make another couple hundred saddles on that. And it worked out great. And then Rick Reed uh, here in Belgrade started making trees and he did the same thing. They just worked great, you know. And now it's gotten to where it's been so many decades of it, you know, people will, I mean, on my order form, yeah, you fill out a detailed order for the tree and what, what, what bar angle, cause I have to tell the tree maker. And so um, it's still a thing of exchanging some photos probably, you know, um, uh, most people, I would say the greater part of my customers pretty much just put the faith in me to, or, or the recommendation from somebody they know that what, whatever I do is going to work fine. You know, they're not going to get something that's just going to eat a horse's back, you know. So that's a, always a, it's a discussion with every saddle I make, you know. Um, there again, with, with the social media, there's, there's so much discussion on this, you know. And I read it and I just am so thankful I've got these really good tree makers that uh, have always worked. Gotcha. So, so that the list, the more I listen to you talk, it sounds like that is an incredibly vital relationship for any saddle maker to have is some solid tree makers to order from. Yeah. If you don't make your own, I know way back in the day uh, there again, in the early eighties, when I struck out of my own, uh, of course, working for saddle shops, they'd always supply the trees, you know, from different guys. And you strike out on your own, you got to, you know, figure out where all your su supplies and will come from. And so um, I tried this guy and that guy. And then, again, for me, it was just a matter of, of hooking up with Keith Gurch. And he was, we're about, we're the same age. And he was working hard trying to make a good tree. <clears throat> and so... Um, yeah, a relationship just develops, you know. I mean, what he did worked for me, and I liked it, and dot to dot, back and forth. He makes one, I pay for it, get another one, you know, it, it works out great. And uh, I remember um, before I met Keith, there was a guy named Todd McGiffin that, that Dale Harwood had, because uh, you couldn't you couldn't buy Dale's trees. I mean, that was when he was still in Idaho Falls, and he made he always made his own trees and had a, two guys working for him. Uh, making saddles and trees and uh, he told me about Todd McGiffin and gosh he did a great job and then one day literally just called him said I quit I'm quitting I'm not doing it anymore so it left me high and dry and gosh I had to find Julian Tubb way up in the middle of Alberta uh, this guy and that guy and, and uh, but even previous to that before I'd really s solidly started my own business I had asked Dale Harwood for a job and he said uh, yeah I could really use somebody in my tree shop and I was all excited and then he decided to, he closed his 
his uh, public shop and moved home. So it didn't ever work out. So at his recommendation, he said, just, but don't ever make your own trees. They're, they're miserable. They're horrible. You got to have a wood shop, you pop wet, hide around. It's hot. It's awful. If you can, if you can find a good tree maker and stick with them, that's much easier on you. So that's what I've always done. And uh, it's kind of unfortunate because I'd have, well, just the practical knowledge of, of, you know, cutting the wood and putting it together and rawhiding that I've never done. You know, I've just uh, always had a good tree maker. Now I've got three. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now it sounds like your setup's pretty ideal in terms of rotating those orders like you talked about. Yeah. And it's, it's gotten so, uh, it's gotten so good uh, to the point now where people, uh, and it's, and it's a lot of just repeat uh, business or recommendations from other people, they'll specify which tree they want, you know, so I spread them out between those three guys and that works out really well, you know, and uh, I've never, never run out of, of trees. Cool. Would you talk a little bit about Dale Harwood? What, what was he like to work around? Well, I never, I never uh, got the chance to work for him. He was a, he was a, a huge influence. Uh, there again, hearing about him, you know, via Ray Hunt and the guys, and um, I'm sure I probably called him. He had a, this was in the 80s, he had a public shop in Idaho Falls. They had a storefront with a tax store, uh, and of course, he was the head saddle maker, and he had two guys working for him at the time, like uh, Randy and Steve, and uh they did a little everything, you know, I mean, with any saddle, there's all these components that you have to make. And I'm sure they made them for back cinches and billets and all the pieces and parts and whatever. And I remember stopping and visiting with him. And at the time I was doing a lot of uh, kind of fancy head stalls, lots of chinks with tool tops on them. And I think I must've taken because he bought them for his store. I remember him buying those head stalls for the store. And so he saw that I could do the work. I mean, I wasn't just, you know, a craftsman in the, in the basement. <laughs> I laugh because I'm in the basement. But he, <laughs> he, uh, he, he encouraged me a great deal. And one of the greatest, uh, well, really the only trip I ever made with him is was back uh, in the early 80s. He invited me to go with him and his wife, Karen, to the uh, Big Loop Rodeo at Jordan Valley, Oregon. And it was a long drive. I mean, from, from Idaho Falls over to Boise and then south. To, and, and we talked uh, the whole way. And he lined me out at that time even about uh, pricing. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be a good craftsman. It's way another thing to be any kind of a businessman. And a lot of really great artists and craftsmen aren't the greatest businessmen. You know, you, you can you can take way too long to do something. You can price yourself way too low, way too high. You know, how are, how are you in, uh, you know, people relationships and stuff? You know, I've seen all kinds. You know, they might be a great craftsman, but they just can't stay in business for one reason or another, uh, always on, on the financial basis of it. And so... We talked a lot about that, and uh, he was always just a huge encouragement. You know, I haven't talked to him in years, and, and much to my regret, um, 
we used to get together and all through the 80s, I'd have a group of artists and saddle makers get together for branding around Montana and he'd come to that. But no, he was, uh, and just, uh, he's, a, he's a phenomenon. I've never seen a guy that could work so fast and, and, and do things just so right every time. You know, he had a system that uh, he developed, you know, he raised his family on it. That was their sole business, you know, and uh, to make, the, to do the trees and the saddles, he did his own silver work for a number of years, you know. So, uh, and it's just like any young guy when, when you meet an older person in a trade or business that you're in and you want to do work that's uh, at that standard, you know. And so, uh, no, I'll always be greatly indebted to him just for doing the, the kind of work he does. Just, just the other day, I, I found I was digging through some box of pictures and I found two photos of his saddles that were done way long time ago probably in the 80s a full flower stamped they were both full flower stamped and I and I and I just sat and marveled at them how it's just the style I like it was you know when you're young and you're developing your eyes you know you're developing your senses towards what kind of work do I want to do you know and then everybody starts out you copy somebody you know you 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 copy somebody and I can remember very early on just kind of branding my brain with that with that style that he does you know and I certainly don't think I I copy him I mean you wouldn't set our saddles side by side and they'd be identical by any means uh, we've just got two different brains and you see especially in the tooling I mean, is where you, it really comes out you know um, saddle construction is, is, is basic and and pretty much the same with the high level all the high level hands that there are you know um, the tooling really distinguishes stuff different but I, I love his style love his work and I'll always be greatly indebted to him for the time he took with me the encouragement you know and I, I know I can talk to any number of other guys he was like that with he was very he was very, the, the, the good way that worked for him you know there again like like the, the my statement before just going to work for these guys in the world war ii era you know it was like they didn't horse around they didn't mess around and and uh and dilly dally on stuff and they just went they went in they put their head down for eight to twelve hours a day and produced you know yeah that's I awesome grew, i grew up in that in in that formula you know, and uh, I've since slackened off a little bit, you know, I don't work <laughs> the 12 hours, but I certainly did, you know, in the past, the best era I ever was ever in was through the nineties. I'd make five saddles a month. And I know that now because I always put a serial number and uh, a person's name on every saddle I make up under the left uh, seat jockey. And so over the years, there's been so many saddles of mine move around and and so they'll somebody will write to me and say what are the details on this so i'll get that serial number so i've got i've got old boot boxes with like say almost 700 orders in them and in order fortunately so i can whip them up right away and i look back through the 90s and you know looking for somebody's saddle with that serial number and i'll go my god i was making you know five or six saddles a month you know yeah yeah that's that's busting it man that's yeah, that's a lot of work yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
but I, yeah, but yeah. I had to, I did. I mean, I just did, you know, I had, it wasn't, wasn't for any other reason than just, sure. I had to. And I'm sure, you know, that volume <laughs> is what got, got you to where you are now. Right. Cause I'm sure I probably in a lot of ways, you feel like you're light years past where you were in the nineties and just building those skills rep after rep is probably what got you there. Yeah, it really does. It's, it's practice. You know, yeah. you talk to any great musician or, or look at the thousands of horses, you know, these guys have ridden, you know, and just practice just, you know, and this works good. So I'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I better change up a little bit and pretty, pretty soon that becomes common practice, you know, and, and, it, you know, speed is, is a huge thing. It's not everything, but just, just staying so steady at it, you know, not, not like say these old guys, you know, you just didn't dink around and put something on and take it off. And well, maybe I'll, you know, it was none of that. It was just get it done, you know? Yeah. And, and they'd show you, and they show you how to do it right. It was a neat thing, you know, whether however long it took to comprehend that but just pure <laughs> practice just one after another after another after another and i got in the habit back in those days i'd always work on three saddles at a time or i'd start three say for instance i put three ground seats in and i still do the same thing now i still like to uh, finish one up and be already going on another one you know you just roll into the next uh, project yeah. You know? yeah so Another question I had, and you mentioned like a musician there. So, you know, we've talked about like saddle fit and riggings and stuff like that. At what point, like what kind of balance are you striking between saddle making being a science and being an art? Because obviously you could look at it and see that it's both. Um but kind of like anything, like say a musician, they've got to spend like their first five, 10 years just learning the foundations of music. And then after that, you can kind of like you learn all the rules. So you know how to break all the rules sort of deal. Do you find that you're like striking that science and art balance with your saddle making? You know, that's a really good question. And I certainly have my own personal opinion on it. I, I got to say, honest to gosh, I consider what I make going out to somebody like a Crescent Ranch. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just got to be because of the way I started and what those saddles were being used for, which was hard work. And uh, from day one, you know, when you select your leather, it's got to be good and tough and you put the piece out of the side of leather on the saddle where it needs to be it needs to be firm or more moldable or something and so it was just so indelibly uh, branded into my method and my brain that this this the saddle this object is is gotta withhold tough use you know and then and it, I mean, that's the, you look at a really nice saddle. It's really the edges are finished great, and the pieces fit great, and the stitching's great. You know, and everything's yeah. great, <laughs> and it's it's not going to come back, you know, falling apart. You know, and I still to this day, that's why I, I kind of call them crescent wrenches because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's got to be good and tough. It's got to be able to be 
you know, either well taken care of or thrown down or, you know, not taken care of. And that's the foundation of, of every one of them I do, whether it's full flower stamped and it'll set in somebody's house forever. You know, what they do with it is, is, is what they do with it when they get it. The pretty part, the art aspect, I just personally, I, I, I don't personally think what I do is, is artwork. I mean, you can do, and you should do a really nice professional job of say a flower tooling, or even if it's basket stamped or whatever. There again, it goes back to the basics. The leather's gotta be cased just right. You should have a good knowledge of design in the flower stamping, you know, and just don't put blobs of stuff on there. Got to have uh, some horticulture experience. Make sure yeah, you don't yeah. put a tulip coming out of a daffodil. Yeah, yeah, I've always exactly. wondered about that. Or you see on some of those saddles where they do the wildlife mixed in there and you'll see like an Amazon scene and then they have like a desert toad or something. And you're like, what were they <laughs> yeah. smoking today? You know, yeah, <laughs> their wildlife yeah. mixed up. Yeah, or the jungle again, scenes, just... they do a, they do a, uh, what is it? A pronghorn? No, they do a, uh, a gazelle in North America. That's, oh yeah. That's always a good one. Yeah. It ain't right. It ain't right. No, it isn't. So, so no, I just think of them as, as, uh, first and foremost to be a good working tool, you know, and you can do, you know, it enhances it a great deal to have a flower stamped or have silver on it. It's just, it's just, a, it's just, that's what the object is. It's, it's meant, it's meant to, tool and be pretty and have silver on it and I, and I love doing those you know mm -hmm. but as far as I, I can't emphasize enough how it was when I started you know <laughs> way back when because these guys were just tough guys and they hired you to make money profit for them and if you got it you got it if you didn't go on do something else you know Sure. And so I was dedicated to just learning to construct a, a very durable product, you know, and, in, and that in itself, like I say, is, is a gorgeous thing. You know, I, I take so much pain to make a nice rough out. Yeah. You know, leather that's, it's called buffed uh, rough out. It's not all shaggy and stuff. And even today, I'll see guys using the stuff that's not buffed and it's kind of shaggy. I'm like, oh man, that's mm. they're 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 cheating themselves when they're doing that. And yeah. uh, so I'm I'm not much for you know it's fun. Over the years, I've gone to different shows, and of course, you take a full flower stamp saddle or something, and it's fun to compare that stuff. But it, it certainly it certainly isn't the first priority of a of a good saddle to be. Uh, you know gorgeous and be considered a piece of artwork you know sure so so here's here's another question for you then um with you having that ranch background and obviously you know spending a lot of time on the back of a horse and stuff um i know there are some people making saddles like saddle makers that they don't hardly ride at all and don't really you know maybe didn't grow up with that background do you feel like in any way um you know, maybe not like long-term, but in the beginning that kind of inhibits someone's ability to, to make a saddle correctly is not having that like experience, like in time in the saddle. I think the best aspect of that 
question of that mindset is that um, the, the, a lot of the great enjoyment I got from making saddles were just using them. You oh, know, yeah. like I say, when I developed that narrow seat thing, it was like, gosh, dang, I think uh, I can do something that's going to be more comfortable for me. And and that's pretty huge. I mean, it, it's 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 a thing, you know, as I'm constructing the saddle and I kind of visualize riding it, you know, I always sit in them numerous times, you know, when I'm making the ground seat, I sit in them when they're done, right you know, and look forward to it, you know, and another and a really interesting aspect back in the day, back in say the 19 teens, 1920s, when there were big saddle shops, uh, there was one in Miles City, there was um, one in Denver, Colorado, and they were, they were not um, factories, uh, Hamleys in uh, Pendleton, Oregon is a great example, and they might, I mean, they might have a dozen saddle makers, you know, and a lot of these guys um, that I'd heard, you know, they weren't cowboys. They weren't working cowboys. They were professional saddle makers, and they would they would move from one shop to another, maybe kind of like mechanics do today or something, you know. And a lot of them weren't cowboys, but they were taught to construct a really great saddle, you know. So I think the best answer to that is just the fact of the pleasure it gives me to to make a nice saddle because I know, and I don't ride at all anymore, unfortunately, but but when I did, gosh, it was fun to make one, and, and different times, I'd even make one for somebody else, and ask them if I could go ride it and stuff, you know, and, yeah. and that's a lot of fun, that's I, a lot of fun. I know? would I would say that's probably incredibly rewarding, after spending all those hours in the shop, and then you're out, you know, you know and there's, there's, little, there's little things about that you look at, you know, obviously you're in a saddle shop and you've got the stand that you make it on. And, and, uh, I'll never forget one day I, uh, was riding a saddle I'd made and had a flat plate rigging in it. And I, I mean, this other guy had roped this cow and I got off tire down or something. Anyway, you know, I, you know, the saddle was cinched up tight with the cow on the end of the rope and I got off and I looked just having to look over at that flat plate rigging and I remember thinking you know that the hardware that's in it the, the stainless steel or brass piece of hardware that's in your flat plate rigging you know mm -hmm. and I looked at that and I went you know I think if I cocked that just a little bit over that cinch would hang that much straighter you know I just it just dawned on me it's like wow so I, to this day I still do that sure. you know so there's a lot comes from just using the things that help you improve, you know, I a, lot, a, a lot. Oh, sorry. Do you think there's some things that are carried over though? Like there's an old story. Um, I've heard it a bunch about a, it's, it's like about a roast. And at Thanksgiving, this lady's got a roast that she's cooking and she cuts the end off of the roast and throws it in the oven. She's done it every year. She cuts both ends off. And finally, one year, somebody's over for dinner, and she's like, how come you cut off the ends of that roast? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. My mom always did it. So she goes and finds her mom. She goes, Mom, Mom, uh, how come you always cut the ends off the roast? And her mom goes, I don't know. I don't know. My mom always did it. So they're like, where is your mom? You know, it turns out her mom's in the nursing home. So they go track down her mom, and, you know, she, they get her. They get her talking, get her awake. They're like, hey, grandma, 
why did you always cut the ends off the roast? And she goes, well, back in my day, we had a little oven and we had a little teeny pan. And, uh, well, that was the only way I could get it to fit in the oven. Mm-hmm. I had to cut the ends off to fit it in that pan. And, and that was something that didn't get remedied for three generations. And there was no reason to still be cutting the ends off the roast. And I wonder if you see stuff like that in saddle making where they just always did it that way. And it takes someone like you that day looking at it going, huh, I could, I could tilt that a little bit. That would be better or add something or delete something or all kind of little innovations that people just were building it like somebody before them did. Yeah. Just like the example I just gave, you know, it just took using, using it to, to see that that I could make a change that I felt made it made that flat plate rigging better and pull and cinch pull better yeah there's definitely um hardened core traditions you know um when i went to work for kings it was pretty cool because they were renowned for their arena style full flower stamp saddles you know that's what that's what don king made his career on and I worked with two other saddle makers in there. One was his son, John, and the other was this great, great saddle maker named Billy Gardner. And that's all they made every day, all day. That's their job. They had they had all these you know, roping trees lined up there. Another saddle maker by the name of Jim Lathrop, who was probably 10 years. So he had a very distinct style. And then Doug Cox, he had just come from the Ray Holes Saddle Company in Grangeville, who were renowned for well, with some of the early day weight and whatnot. So I had a tremendous uh, influence there, you know, different styles and whatnot. And so I go to Kings and I, you know, like since at three forks, I'd make, you know, saddles with bulldog taps on it, you know, or long taps, you know, more buckaroo style stuff. And they, they bought all the trees. So I start making up this wacky, wild cowboy stuff, wades and stuff with tapaderos on it and all this stuff, you know, and boy, oh boy. They, and then everything just got put on the floor to sell you know, and they never said not to, you know, but there again, I was certainly faced with kind of like, what are you doing here? We make rope, but you're sure met with the the attitudes of the two different guys. And they were very encouraging They're great guys to work with and stuff, but they were still kind of like, well, you know, we make rope and saddles here, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And, and uh, it was a great experience. I made a lot of rope and saddles too, you know, which I had not done previously, you know, and it's a good style to know. I think a guy, especially in his learning years should be exposed to all different styles. If you're going to, if you're going to go into it as a business for yourself or on your own, um, you don't know what you're going to be called on to make, you know, um, we talked a little earlier about the the fork in the road where I kind of got into a clientele that rode a lot of weights and stuff, you know, but still over the years, I've made any number of, of different styles, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it was really good to have that experience under my belt to be able to do it. And, uh, yeah, I bet still to this, still, still to this day. And I, there, there again, you know, we talked about earlier too. I, I, I've had requests for some things where I just felt somebody else could do it better, you know, say cutting, cutting saddles or barrel racing saddles or things like that, that I just don't, yeah. care so much to get into <laughs> hey, hey uh, Fair enough. joe are you getting any of this kind of fuzziness or is that just me uh no everything's been pretty clear on my side so far all right good deal okay hey, Chaz, i had another question 
and that is uh, Hamley hangers. Have what's the deal with Hamley hangers? I've ridden in one saddle with them. I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, was that not something that took off? Or um, you asked me what what the deal is with them, and they're just all nothing but a bad deal. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so <clears throat> what what are they? I don't know what that is. Well, in the uh, in the construction of a tree, there's the area where the stirrup leather has to go has to hang on the tree i mean it has to go up over the bar and and yeah. be there it has to be you know to support your weight and everything you know stirrup leather just has to attach to the tree mm-hmm. and uh there again and i don't know there was a time when these different saddle shops were uh, really in competition uh, with each other hamley's ray holes by Salia, the shops and Billings or in Montana and Wyoming and they were I think always kind of searching for some new advantage to have theirs you know and um, it's always been a thing about stirrup leathers and fenders because they have to move I mean you know your legs go forward and back or in and out and they can't be you can't you know rivet a stirrup leather to a tree and they have to move. So there's always been the thing about the free swing aspect to a stirrup leather and fender. And so uh, somebody came up with the idea of, well, rather than um, run that stirrup leather up over the tree bar, let's rivet into the top side of the tree bar a, uh, a piece of metal. It's like a long oval U shape and it's riveted in the top of the tree bar with clearance underneath it oh. cut out of the wood. So kind of so like an English saddle. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. The, yeah. Okay, hook, where the stirrup leather is hanging. Yeah. And your stirrup leather yeah. has to go up, make a drastic sharp bend, and then come back down over that, mm. that piece of metal. And in fact, I've got one in, in my shop right here, one that I made for my dad years ago. And... Uh, uh, made one and only one the thing i don't like about it there's two things i really don't like about it were that and the stirrup leather's hefty full weight leather it's 13 16 ounce you know it's, it's not a thin piece of strap you know it has to be stout and sturdy to support your weight and to last and to wear well so you're taking this and it's oiled you know uh, before it's put in and so it's, it's it is bendable but where you take a and it's three inches wide two and a half or three inches wide and you take it up and you bend it put that much of a sharp crimp in it you know where where, where whereas when it runs over the the tree bar there's a lot more round surface there it's just not a sharp bend in it yeah and so, and more surface area too just in general for that pressure that makes sense exactly and so you run it up on your on the top side of the saddle up through the seat cover you just can't get away from it and it just puts a lot of pressure i think that they'd probably wear out faster because just of the the sharp crimp in it you know and it's over a piece of metal like say that surface area it needs yeah and i've heard in the past the depending on how there, it wasn't just Hamley, Hamley's came up with it the first I knew of, but there was some that, that the, because they have to be riveted through a piece of wood. And that's the thinnest part of the whole tree is, is that tree bar in there. It's, it's yeah. it papers down thin 
there's a rock in the bar. I've had heard about him over there actually pulling out, which would mean repair it, you tear into everything, tear everything apart and try to re redo it. So I just always stayed away. Uh, now they, the advantage, they are free swinging, you know, if you want, if you want that, you know, I mean, they do have free swing. I, I've had one requested in the last 20 years and I just said, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, one of the few times I say, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Because I can, with the kind of ground seat I put in, uh, they're again built into the tree bar is a three inch slot in the wood and then it's covered with rawhide on the underneath side because where that stirrup lay that's on the underneath side it has to the uh, the wood has to be cut out so it's not causing a lump on the underneath side of the of the saddle of the tree and I can put it in a ground seat where you know you can get all the swing that you need you know for for let's say proper writing yeah <laughs> yeah you want to just be you know you just going to go all out all day and in the neck what the hell you know get a yeah. box oh you man know? it's kind of silly yeah, yeah so whose bad idea was that can we trace that back to one particular person and... <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well, it was like long, long gone Mr. Uh, he's already he's already gone they were probably yeah. just looking at english saddles i'd imagine that, I mean that that like growing up in Virginia, that's what I grew up riding in. I um was English saddles and I didn't like we had Western saddles, but it didn't really occur to me that the Western saddle leathers were around the tree until much later in life. You know, yeah, you know, it's they just, were it's constructed just one of those, differently. It's just one of those old things again, like I've you know developed a career and if it works great i just leave it alone i just go you know this is going to work really great for you the, a lot of ladies saddles i uh you know the weight of a western saddle they're again like fitting a horse is always a big uh topic you know uh, small ladies that you know gonna saddle a horse so they're wanting to really decrease the weight as much as possible and so hundreds and hundreds of times i put in a a two and a half inch wide stirrup leather that's riveted to the top of the fender it doesn't run the full length of the fender underneath that that helps decrease some weight and so even with that you get a lot of stirrup leather swing you know because you're cutting your ground seat out you know for a full wide swing radius on it so um, oh no don't come to me for hammer hangers <laughs> duly noted we'll put that in the show notes <laughs> no hammer hangers we'll, we'll go chuck that saddle tomorrow yeah done oh so here's another burning saddle question i have um to go along with ben so with burning um, a saddle yeah or it's yeah. burning inside of you it's burnt it's been burning inside of me for a long time um so the twist the twist you put in a stirrup fender i've heard it called most commonly i've heard it called a, a nevada twist or you know you can correct you're the saddle maker so you can correct me if i'm wrong but basically twisting it such that the blevins buckle faces inward towards the strap and then you know the strap hangs down to the inside of the stirrup right um why why do why is that not what people do on every saddle ever and what is the like because the first saddle i ever bought that had that twist i was like i'm i'm never going back ever and why 
is that a new thing or have people been doing that? And why does the other style exist? Because it seems to me, just from my anecdotal experience, the twist is so superior to any other thing you could do with them. It's actually called an organ twist. Organ so. twist. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's, like the first I said, I ever, that's the first I ever heard referred to it. So wherever it came from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a mainstay in my saddles unless somebody just absolutely says, do not want it. And I'll, I'll, I'll do it the, you know, the other way that they say. Um, I was first exposed to it probably after Conley's. I never, we never did it at Conley's. Um, and it probably, you know, obviously came from maybe Hamley's or Ray Holes or, well, the old Visalia saddles. I think they used to do that. And uh, gosh, it just makes so much sense. You know, it, it puts that, it puts that counter bind in there where your stirrup just can't swing forward. You know, there's just there's hardly any breaking into it, you know, that kind of thing. Plus uh, something that just grates me to no end. And I just go, why do they do that with, with the, the, let's say, the old standard style where you're just <clears throat> folding the, the bottom of your fender over, putting a stirrup in it, and that Blevins buckle has to lay perpendicular. Well, then that allows the stirrup leather to hang straight right in front of the stirrup just hangs right in front of the stirrup it can't get out of the way unless it's unless it's adjusted down so much that the tip of the stirrup leather is above the stirrup if you're following me yeah you know and you see people riding and you talk about a way to get in a wreck because your toe goes out through the stirrup and it bumps right <laughs> into that stirrup leather and i've seen people <sighs> catch you know the tip of the stirrup leather on top of their foot which would just not allow you to pull your foot out of the stirrup Mm, yeah crazy or they'll take and fold it up and tie it off somehow or something you know so i just it's a rare case where i won't twist them like that that's a good way to spot the han yawkers if they haven't taken care of that yet on their oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's like you're just you're just asking for a wreck you know yeah they don't know they don't know so that needs to be either cut off or or twisted (laughs) the stir yeah 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 well, I, I know it would, for me, it was several years ago now, but for me, it was like seeing the light the first time I ever rode in a saddle with a twist. I was like, man, I'm, I'm never going back. Yeah. Well, it really hurts you, you know, cause you're, you're, um, especially when that, that standard, uh, turn in the bottom of your fender you know your stirrups wanting to turn in so all day long you're you're pushing against your stirrup you're pushing your toe out which goes up to your knee which goes up to your hips you know you can get really really sore trying to ride like that constantly pushing those stirrups out all day you know like that mm-hmm. not a good not a good thing oh that reminds me of something i had um this was kind of weird uh so someone the other day a client she was talking about her saddle at home and she's looking for a new one. Actually, I was telling her about you and, but anyway, she was talking about, you know, the, the difference between a man and a woman biomechanically. And so obviously the, the pelvis is different, but then she was talking about the legs and the feet and she was like, yeah, and you know, our legs, when we put our feet in the stirrup, you know, we can't ride as good as you guys. And we have to put our feet to the side and all this stuff. 
Have you had any, because I know some saddle makers put those wedges in the bottom of a stirrup. Now, I'll check her thing against the against the, the surgeon when we have the orthopedic surgeon on. We'll talk to him about this lady's yeah, yeah. biomechanics. But, I, and, and you can chime in, too, with whatever knowledge you have on that. But um, as far as saddle making, have you had a lot of people want those wedges in their stirrups? I've never, never liked the look or the feel or. You know, they, they got to be super popular and the, the best explanation I have for them, I've put in hundreds and hundreds of them. It's just a little thin strip of hardwood. Um, and, 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 and using them myself and having them and not having them, you know, there again, I think it probably came a lot from Ray Hunt. He liked a five inch bell bottom stirrup. Uh, uh, Monels, they were referred to Monels because they used to cover them with Monel nickel. They're now covered pretty much primarily with stainless, and that's that's a big platform for a foot. You know, it's easier to to blow a stirrup like that versus something that's that fits more in the arch of your boot. You know, so the block did enable you to have that grip in the arch of your foot with a big white stirrup. Right. Well, you're talking about a little block at the back, right? That's the greatest industry. Okay, but I'm talking about. Pardon me. Um, where the you're talking about a block at the back of the stirrup, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I'm talking oh, yeah. about that. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I'm talking, talking about, about the wedge, where where folks have a wedge, where on the outer edge of the stirrup, it's been brought up maybe a quarter inch, and then it slopes oh. down to nothing. Or it might be the opposite. I don't know which way they rig it, but the bottom of their Monel stirrup, the floor of it basically, the platform mm -hmm. will be... Um, it will be built up on one side down to nothing on the other side. So it, so it, which any saddle I've seen that breaks in, you know, the stirrups end up level. Yeah. yeah. But I've seen that. In fact, we have one in the tack room, but it was just funny. And this lady was saying how women's feet were different and stuff, but I didn't know if you'd ever heard that or had, no, had people request the stirrup be made like that with the wedge in the bottom. Yeah, I, I never have, and I've okay. never, I've never encountered that ever. Okay. Because uh, I've talked to some saddle makers, and then they, they even offered it up front. In fact, some people wanted to do it, and it was kind of tough to, to dissuade. Interesting. Them. Interesting. Yeah. I, I'd yeah. say you know the, the, the width of the stirrups does matter a lot. I mean, just in in correlation to the size of your foot and stuff. You know, and that's the popular style to have the, wide stirrup you know because other guys are riding it and stuff and it's maybe it's not for everybody you know i i, I uh, have talked about that with different people and um you know you ask them even how you know some people ride with just their toe in a stirrup kind of thing you know and i say well maybe a little narrow stirrup would, would be more comfortable for you you know maybe you won't be just like all the other people in the crowd but gee whiz you got to ride with comfort because there's you know you, you put a lot of weight in your stirrups i mean you should you don't ride around with your your feet bobbing up and down you know or you shouldn't yeah. and yeah. so that's about as much as i get into with stirrups you know and i and 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 it does work to have a little narrower one especially if you got a little teeny foot you know it's like you know and then the weight the weight of it's amazing you know i've currently got a an order coming up for a little gal and i said i would do it i you know, it was up to me, but she wants a 28 pound saddle. And uh, I said, okay, I can do it. I, I can, I can, uh, 
I'll actually have a scale here. And as I put pieces on the saddle, I'll weigh it. So I know where I'm at, you know, and then like in her case, I suggested, you know, and she had to have the Monel type stirrup. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you right now, you better, I would highly suggest like a two inch wide one, you know, because you just, you just can't get light saddles with all the heavy stuff. on. Yeah. It, you know? Yeah. Sure. And so, um, yeah. There's uh, syrups are really important. I mean, they're, there's great there again there's people that specialize just in, in, in stir production now which is great i use trina miller's uh, trina weber's which are great she's done a great job for a lot of years you know and uh, very rarely you know back in the day there was a thank goodness i don't live through that era so much of the leather covered stirrups because man those are arduous to make man they're it's a lot of work to leather cover stirrups, you know, a lot of extra work, you know, and I just don't do that that much. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get off stirrups, uh, I'm glad you brought up blocks though, before we talked about the wedge deal. Um, cause Ben and I are good friends and like good friends do, we have a lot of things we disagree on. So what is your opinion on blocks or no blocks? Or I'd, I'd like to get your two cents on blocks and stuff well like i like i said before the, the real is, is i found in using them i'm not just hearsay thing uh, i found because uh, i'd like the wider stir four or five inch um i like i like the the platform that it provides you know when you're you know you're all this weight is in the stir i mean there's a lot of you know that's how you balance you know and so um I particularly liked them because it it did give me a grip in my arch versus just over the corner, you know, the edge of the stirrup. I, I like that, you know, and, and you got to be careful you don't make them too high or sure. anything that would cause like a like riding an oxbow or something. Mm -hmm. But for that, it just helped me hold a bigger stirrup better, you know. That that was the advantage of them. Gotcha. Um, I think the other, yeah, or they make your arch sore or something, probably not for you, you know, because, uh, you know, the edge of the stirrup is, it's not completely sharp, you know, but there's a definite edge there. And I always, I mean, all my life, but I'm a kid, I rode oxbows. And so you, you put your foot in the stirrup all the way up to your heel of your boot, you know, mm. so that's was comfortable for me to ride like that, not just put my, my toe in the stirrup type of thing, you know so um well there you so, go ben. so so joe though are you what are you trying to start do you not like the blocks or you do like no them? i cannot stick. i love the blocks i know we've had this the best like a good six, five, at least five inch stirrup with a block see i like i like <laughs> the five just, inch stirrup you're Dive. just not you're not I've, committing to the ride if the thing gets bronchy and you're thinking about bailing <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't want to be stuck May, yeah. hey man i you gotta I get another say, night latch yeah, I guess bigger so. Cheyenne roll, bigger Cheyenne roll. Yeah, but and a seat belt. <laughs> um, no, Chaz, can I, you do seat belts? Have you done a seat belt yet on the saddle? Not even, not even close. <laughs> you know? Like I want to get out of there too, man. If something goes down, yeah, I want out of there. Yeah, I I ain't married to that thing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get out of there into an electric <laughs> fence though, or something though either. Um, <clears throat> but no, Ben and I have had discussions about the blocks, and yeah, I've. Um, you know, when I've ridden down there with you and like borrowed a saddle, I've ridden with the blocks and I was like, I, I cannot stand these things. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just <laughs> how I grew up 
riding, you know, and, and I, maybe... I think you'd get used to them pretty quick because I didn't have them for a long time. And then yeah. when I had them, they felt weird. And then after about a week, now it feels weird to not have blocks. Well, I, so I, I think it's something humans are so resilient. I think you get over it really fast. I, I think so. But I also don't think not having blocks is inhibiting my horsemanship in any way. So I'm, I'm going to keep riding without them so we can have this, uh, these two camps we're in right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good with that. That's good. Yeah. Well, cool. Chaz, in, in the world of saddle building and, and making, and um, it, it seems like something you see some younger guys coming up that are doing it more. And where do you see saddle making in the next, I don't know, 25, 30 years? Which way is the industry going? Is, is there more uh, guys making saddles for folks who are, I mean, obviously that's a question even for the horse industry of what people are using horses for, but I guess folks will always be using horses for a job. But um, it's such a neat art form. And just looking out into the future, where do, where do you see these young guys going with saddle making? Is there any new ideas coming along, or is it just a matter of keeping the same traditions going going forward? I think in looking towards the future, you look in the past. Um, people are always going to ride horses. They're always going to you know strive to be better horsemen. Um, and there's just really nothing else that can fit the mold uh, in uh, constant riding than a custom saddle that's, that's custom made to your needs, you know. Uh, there'll always be tons and tons of factory-made saddles, of course, you know. Um, in uh, almost 50 or 47 years I've been doing this, um, there hasn't been any change in that. You know, there's, there's, uh, as, as new dedicated horsemen are coming up or growing up. Um, so there are uh, young saddle makers, you know, they're striving to, to build a really, really quality product. You know, it's, it's, it's like nothing else will do. You know, I, I really can't imagine you guys just doing, you know, I don't want custom saddles anymore. I think I'll go get a factory one, you know. It's, yeah, it's no not, way. It's not, it's not, it's not what would do you any good. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> um, and you know, it's, it's age old. I mean, the trees are made out of wood and they're covered with rawhide and, and, and they're covered with a bovine hide, you know, nothing, no other animal hide will do other than the bovine, you know? Um, so there's not a lot you can change there, you know? Um, over the years, you know, when I first started, there was nothing but uh, brass or bronze hardware, and they fortunately there's there's now in the market uh, nothing but stainless, which is a better metal, you know, rust and all that stuff. That's been you know a huge change in it. Um, they're covering stirrups with stainless now and more not more nail nickel. So there's just little things that that enhance the quality of, of a good custom saddle. Um, I know, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I know any number of young guys, I say young twenties and thirties, they're just dedicated to be a good, being a good saddle maker, you know, and, and fortunately they seek out whomever uh, for guidance and whatnot. So, um, you know, I mean, 
courses are going to be the same. You know, they'll be big, little, fat, thin, whatever. They'll still be that skeletal structure and muscle structure on a horse, you know, that you have to put a, a, a wood and leather saddle on, you know, that has to work. So um, the best thing that can happen, like say, is, is these up and comers are really seeking uh, the right knowledge, you know, to make, to make a really good product, you know, for the horse and the rider. Um, materials, I just, I, I mean, they have just no man-made material other than the stainless hardware or the, the buckles and stuff. You know, we line them with, with pure real wool skin, you know, that's, that's worked the best, you know? So, uh, I just encourage guys. I have any, any, I have any number of guys I stay in constant contact with about uh, young saddle makers, you know, about this and that or the other thing. And unfortunately they, they listen and just like I did, I mean, I was no different, you know, in the, in the seventies and eighties, you know, going to Dale Harwood or working with these great guys, man, I had, I had a, a, a rounded early learning experience with these guys. It was, was unbelievable because, you know, they came from different parts of the country and stuff. And, and then it just all molds into what one product I do now and still do, you know, and I, and I still seek knowledge constantly. My gosh, there's, there's a good friend of mine, Terry Henson in Texas, that's just a phenomenal saddle maker. He's, he's, I don't know how he produces so many and, and really, really well. And so I'll ask him about, you know, ways of speeding things up or a lot of times, a lot of times our conversations is on material, you know, where do you get this? Where do you get that? That kind of thing. So that, that's still going on very vigorously in the trade, mm. you know, interaction with people, you know, um, I'm going up next week to Bozeman. There's two young gals that have the uh, uh, big sky mohair cinch company that are just doing phenomenal cinches. I mean, who, 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 who would have thought such, you know, great, colorful, beautiful cinches could be, you know, a great business for them. And I went up a year ago, they wanted to learn basic leather work to put uh, breast collar straps and latigos and stuff. So we did a really fun course with them and, I'm, and they want to get into some le uh, flower tooling now. So I'll go up next week and spend a few days with them and get them started on flower stamping, you know. So the interest has never waned ever, you know. There's, there's uh, different guys do some schools, you know, most, most guys in, you know, in my case, I mean, you're just busy every day making a living, you know, I mean, I, I, when I had public shops, which I did for 20 years around Billings, of course, anybody can come in. So there was, you know, sure. where now I'm down in my, literally in my furnace room, which is the best shop I've had in my life. I love it. Love it down here. It's temperature controlled, <laughs> which is huge. Yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, heck yeah. I've worked in a lot of garages and outbuildings and sheds and stuff like that. So, right. Which so, is great for sweat and leather. I'm sure those yeah, places doesn't, work, doesn't come out <laughs> or, or blood, blood yeah. doesn't come yeah. out of leather. So. I bet. So it's, it's really, I, you know, uh, getting back to your question. I don't, I don't see it changing any, as long as there's young, whatever age, you know, I suppose you can start this thing at any age. If you yeah. live long enough and uh there's just these young people really dedicated to doing really great work and that and that's that's you know one of the most gratifying things 
you can experience you know it's like you guys with buck and stuff i mean geez mm-hmm. don't you know we're, we're not we're going to get old <laughs> we're going to get old we're going to quit having to do what we do and having somebody you know at least you know pick up on what you've been able to accomplish is, is really great yeah in terms of materials and i'm, I'm a staunch, awesome. staunch traditionalist but like in terms of materials because you look at archery or um uh, different even shooting sports over the years and you know they implement new polymers on guns or with with bows and arrows you have different kinds of uh fiberglass being implemented with saddles has anybody come along and tried to implement something for saddle trees that would take the place of a wooden rawhide covered tree that you now i know from a traditionalist standpoint i mean i would throw that out i'd be all against it but um have, have you ever thought that was a good idea or anyone had a good idea about making a lighter stronger saddle tree that a traditional saddle maker would use and and build a quality custom saddle on well over the years that i've experienced they've tried making a saddle tree out of just about everything um in fact at conley's we had an old saddle tree that was made out of aluminum and then they drilled a bunch of holes in it to make it lighter of course it was just an awful thing you know and then there was a company forever, I forget the name of them, they were made, they were a injected plastic mold tree. And I, th- I think there's still a guy making them in Colorado that's like a plastic mold thing, which, which I, I just never had in my, my there again, my clientele, I had no use for them. You know, I was about to put a plastic tree in somebody's saddle. I mean, yeah. it's, it's impossible. But now they are, they made great strides in covering a, a wood tree with fiberglass. Uh, Dusty Smith in Buffalo, Wyoming, uh, is doing a phenomenal job with them. And there's guys, really good saddle makers, swear by them. Mm. You know, they're super stout. I have, I've not used one. I'm just not ready to break over. I mean, yeah, I, I just yeah, and no, I don't, understand that. And I haven't had anybody come and say, you know, I've got to have a fiberglass covered tree. I, I just... I, I just, I haven't, and I'm not speak, you know, having not used one, I'm not going to really form an opinion on them. You know, uh, Terry Hansen in Texas has used hundreds of them, swears by them. So that's good for me. You know, if somebody just absolutely insisted on one and, and they're being done really right now, yeah, I would try one, hmm. you know, at, at, at everybody's knowledge of it. I mean, this is what you're going to get. This is, you know, there's got to be a little different, obviously a different feel about it. You know, I'm so used to rawhide, what, how it takes glue, how, mm. what it does, you know, what sure. it is, how it is to work with and stuff, you know. What would so be the I, advantage uh, of, of that? Well, I, you know, interestingly enough, I did a, a podcast here a couple of weeks ago with, with uh, Don Gonzalez in, uh, uh, he's in Southern Texas, I think even down around Houston. And like he was saying, you know, it's just so humid there that it just rots the rawhide because mm. rawhide is rawhide. I mean, it's not tanned. And even though it's it's stretched on there and they give it umpteen coats of boat varnish or whatever, um, when it gets wet, it just turns back to wrinkly, sloppy rawhide, especially on the underside of the bars and stuff. And so and I said, man, that makes perfect sense up here in this dry country, man, you know, tree virtually last forever you know 
as, as, as far as not you know break or something but but the rawhide stays intact so for for that and i've heard the same thing about saddles in hawaii you know it's just so humid so much rain and stuff that it just rots it rots leather and rawhide you know <laughs> so for that aspect yeah man use what works in your area you know mm. in your climate you know that's interesting so the fiberglass thing that's up and coming i know T uh, dusty smith doesn't do anything but um fiberglass covered uh the aspect of using rawhide is is there's just no good aspect of it i mean you get it <laughs> it's all dry and rolled up and you got to soak it up again it swells way up and it's ugly and sloppy and it smells like a dead cow and but then but that but it's it's shrink wrap aspect is what literally gives all the strength to a tree you know uh, a tree is made out of four four parts four cannel and two bars and they're dovetailed and glued and screwed together but still it wouldn't withstand the rigorous use of a saddle it's got to have some you know that rawhide aspect to it because it really shrinks i mean it sucks way down hard and it's it's worked for 150 years you know really well sure yeah that makes a lot of sense that's that's interesting i wouldn't have thought of that um but well Chaz, you have been an absolute wealth of information today i learned way more than i was expecting to learn and i was expecting to learn quite a bit so this has been really awesome and quite an honor to have you on the podcast today man well it's my pleasure man i i like they say you don't learn anything when you're talking so i don't know if i learned anything <laughs> other than your guys's patience and your your enthusiasm and everything i appreciate that very much uh, if, yeah if young if young people didn't realize the you know advantage of what i do or, or any custom saddle maker, you know, it would just go away. You know, sure. all of a sudden the next generation just said, well, that's too much money. That's too long a wait. We don't, we can get a saddle at the store, you know? So I very much appreciate your interest in it and uh, enthusiasm and, 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 you know, seeking some knowledge on it, you know? Yeah. Cause it's, um, it's a fairly complicated piece of equipment, you know, um, you want to get it right and uh i enjoy working with with the customers a, gr a great deal uh, getting getting them what they use what they need to use you know yeah uh, that's why i stay fairly open to, to what they want you know i'm not going to argue with them and just make them what i think is right so it's a yeah. lot of fun, a lot of, fun well, I, a lot of fun with our customers when when i can my wife and i we joke about our vacations or, you know, about we're good for about two days and we're just like sick of being gone. <laughs> but yeah. any, anytime I can deliver a saddle in Montana or Wyoming, we do just, just to meet the people, you sure. know, cause you, you, you know, it's usually, I only take enough orders now that I can do within a year's time. So you have a pretty, you know, it goes along and then you have, and all of a sudden they're, they're my main focus. So you have a pretty close personal relationship with them because I get every bit of detail that I can from them, you know, and uh, it's rare, kind of rare cases, but they'll come over to my shop, you know, and you get to know them, get to know their family and they bring their kids in and my wife Mary's out in the front yard playing with her kids, you know, and then deliver them and stuff. So we have a lot of fun with it, you know, and uh, then they uh, will tell some friend about it 
and then they'll come and get it, you know. So it's a nice, it's a nice, it's a nice business, you know. It's it's really a nice business. Yeah. Before yeah. we let you go, is there anything you're doing outside of saddle making? You play golf or anything, or take off a well, day and go do something else? Believe it or not, and I'm going to uh, put myself in a category, I guess. But <laughs> and my wife's and my wife's great origin was taking up pickleball. Oh, really? Oh, nice. It's delightful. I mean, it is delightful, <laughs> except that I'm I'm old and don't probably have the exuberance I should with it, but it's a lot of fun, you know, that's kind of taken over uh, a lot of the area, you know, and it's by no means like an old people's game, it's tough, you know, there's some really tough yeah. players. That, that game is that. getting so, so mm -hmm. popular nowadays, it's like yeah. the town yeah. I live in, we just recently had people put in like the first public pickleball courts, and man, every time i go by there people are playing pickleball yeah 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 it's it's it it's it is really fun and, and uh, of course now I, i've got the excuse well it's too hot so and there's like about a little window and that'll be too cold <laughs> yeah <laughs> we enjoy that and uh, we love uh, this area here is so incredibly rich in western history <clears throat> as many areas are but we you know we've got custer's battlefield and Pompey's Pillar and all these old forts and the, the Bozeman Trail and stuff. So we really enjoy going to those old, uh, especially forts and stuff. They're, you know, a lot of them are really well preserved. You know, we enjoy digging up the history on those and going and seeing them. So uh, we do that. And uh, things you do when you're almost 70, you know, you just kind of yeah. go out for a little bit of a time and then come home. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that, that's that's great, great, man. That's, that's great. Yeah. <clears throat> Cool. Well, Chaz, like I said, we're, this has been an awesome interview and, uh, I don't know about Ben, but I, I think we'll, we'll probably have to circle back with you in maybe six yeah. months or so and, and, and sit down and have some more conversations because I, we could, if we wanted to, we could keep you here all night. So. No, that's been fine. It's been, yeah. Hour and a half or so. Yeah. I keep taking more notes right. as we go. So there's just more yeah. questions, questions, yeah. questions, give birth to more questions. Well, I'm yeah, sure looking do. forward to getting the saddle from you. That, that's yeah, exciting. Joe and I are talking about this all the time. Talk about this ship and stuff. I'll be putting the whammy on you guys for all the detail that I need. Hey, there you go. You know, to get it right. You know. Yeah, so, we're looking forward to it. I know. So I just, just make sure you know the front from the back of a saddle. That's all I ask. That helps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can well, find something on Wikipedia between yeah. now and then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey Siri. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she yeah. just turned on. Now, okay. now that we've got your two cents, we know all the obnoxious questions to ask you. Like, oh, what I about know. this? What about that? Just drive you I up really, a wall. I really want Hamley Hangers, man. I really <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. gotta have. <laughs> and it, it's it'd be really important to me to have these stirrups covered. Um, that that's yeah, a big deal yeah, to me. Really, yeah. Well, and if we could whip up some kind of a kind of a plastic aluminum combination tree, that'd be the best. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah let's yeah, let's go with that. Full let's full start. synthetic saddle. That's what we're after. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of like a tactical tactical wade. Yeah. Yeah. I think, we better, I think we better start over on all this. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Rawhide oh. leather. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm with you all the way. I think <laughs> Joe too will be the last of the the dying. Well, hopefully there's a whole bunch more guys too. But yeah, someday when they're riding hoverboards around, we'll still be riding our horse. So exactly, good for you. All righty, thanks, Chess. <clears throat>
You bet. Thank you guys very much. Good night. Bye, everyone. Bye.